On this episode of Come Pray With Me, I will be interviewing Venerable Tupten Choni of Servasti Abbey. Servasti Abbey is a co-ed monastery located in Newport, Washington State. Founded in 2003 by Venerable Tupten Chodron, they are dedicated to sharing the teachings of the Buddha while serving the community around them. Welcome to the show, Venerable Chonli. It's a pleasure to have you on. Very nice to be here, Sarah. So my first question is, many religions around the world have monks and nuns. What are some of the aspects that differentiate Buddhist monastic life from that of other religions? Well, you know, it's, what's interesting actually is how similar we are. We are... Um, among the Tibetan Buddhist monasteries in the United States, we are one of very few that really is a functioning monastery for training monastics. Um, and so we do have counterparts, counterparts in different Buddhist traditions around the country. Um, but we also live very near a, um, a cloistered order of um, Catholic nuns here. And our lifestyles are very, very similar. When we meet with Catholic nuns, um, and we are mostly nuns here, we do have a monk, but uh, mostly nuns. When we meet with Catholic nuns, this, the sisterhood about the way we have lived our lives is so very similar. So you could say doctrine is different. Um, how we approach it will be different. But the way that we live in community, that we use community life as part of the development of our spiritual um, aspects, you know, living with a lot of people is hard, and that's a big part of monastic training, no matter, I think, what tradition you're in. So, uh, yeah, I think there are more similarities than differences in that way. Whereas, of course, our Carmelite friends have, um, you know, they will have prayers and so forth, and we also have prayers, but they're different. They have rituals of morning ch chanting, and we do too. They're just different. <laughs> so there's a lot of similarities, really. I think that's really interesting, and I honestly wasn't expecting that sort of answer, because even though, you know, both Christianity and Buddhism have monks, you just don't really see them as, like, doing the same thing, just because of, like, oh, well, this, the sutras are really different from the Bible, so it's probably not going to be that same, that similar, but that's really cool how it's just like, oh, no, it's actually pretty similar what we do, and, and we get along pretty well, like, that's... That's very sweet and wholesome. <laughs> yeah. In fact, um, we read this summer about a, a, a group, I can't remember which one it was, but a, a, a home for elderly sisters, gosh, I can't remember the order, in Michigan, um, where a, they lost a dozen nuns to COVID within a month. And when we read that, it was just heartbreaking because we live in spiritual community. We could imagine what it would be like to lose a dozen. My gosh. So I wrote him a card and I, with a picture of our community. And I, I said, you know, uh, we can sympathize with the grief you must be experiencing. And we got a beautiful note back from the, from the um, headmistress, I guess, or the mother superior of that group just thanking us for the acknowledgement. And she said, I can tell from your faces that you have um, your own spiritual practice that's very deep. So that connection was strong. <laughs> that's a very beautiful 
story and that's so heartwarming how she replied to you with just the same level of love and light that you showed to her and I'm sure that really helped to lift their spirits quite a bit and that they will always remember that. Yeah, and we were really, really touched too that she wrote back. So what is uh, daily life in the Abbey like for monks and nuns? Well, our schedule is pretty, is quite structured. We, um, on one hand, and then every day is different. So we start with meditation at 5.30. We meditate together from 5.30 to 7. And we have a series of practices that we do out loud together. And then we're meditating in silence for an hour doing our own practices. Um, we have breakfast at 7.30, and we each take turns cooking, so we're all on rotation. Somebody will go make breakfast for everyone. Right now, I think we're 18 people, 18 or 19, I can't remember. Um, so that's a, you know, it's a big pot of oatmeal, and some of us would much rather eat leftovers, so we do. Um, we have what we call a stand-up meeting at 8.45 every morning. The community checks in to, um, to, to rejoice in something that happened the day before, uh, one by one, and then to outline what we're going to do that day so that everybody is clear about what's happening. Then we have what we call offering service from um, 8.45 until lunchtime. And offering service, is our, as our abbess says, is what other people call work. But we're trying to orient our minds towards understanding that we make every bit of service to the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, and to the spiritual community, and to our lay friends um, as a part of our practice. So it's an offering service time. We have lunch at 1230. We may or may not have teachings. Some days in the morning, uh, some mornings we have teachings at 10 o'clock. Um, sometimes in the afternoon we'll have teachings. Otherwise we have study time from 430 to 6. And then uh, medicine meal at six for those who eat it. About half of us probably have a, sl a small meal in the evening. Most of us don't. And then we meditate again from seven from seven till 8.30 every night or 8.15. So that's the rough schedule. And then we have teachings that come and go. Um, tonight is Holiness the Dalai Lama's teaching. So we'll get out of our meditation early to go plug in and watch His Holiness till I think he's done at 9.30 or 10 our time. Um, we offer courses that you've seen. So there's lots and lots of ano anomalies to the schedule, but the basic schedule remains the same. And we have chanting with our morning practices. We have chanting before breakfast. We have chanting before lunch. We have chanting after lunch. We have another kind of chanting on Tuesdays and Saturday evenings. Mm, so it's, um, yeah, it's quite structured in that way. So I noticed that you just brought up His Holiness the Dalai Lama, and on your website, it says that you're one of the few monasteries in the world to be directly endorsed by His Holiness. So what are some of the ways that this has influenced the Abbey, and what role does the Dalai Lama play to Mahayana Buddhists? Well, in terms of the Abbey, if it weren't for the Dalai Lama, of course, we wouldn't be here. So our teacher and founder is Venerable Tipton Chidrin, um, whose bio you probably saw. She's been ordained for over 40 years, almost 45 years, and she's a direct student of His Holiness the Dalai Lama. She um, had the fortune for the time that she was in India to be studying with some of the most amazing teachers that came out of Tibet 
during the um, diaspora after the, they were taken over by the communist Chinese. Um, and so she has a very strong link with the tradition and with His Holiness uh, in particular. She has other root teachers as well, um, such that um, His Holiness has been very much behind Western monastics. So the situation is such that the monastic tradition has been strong in Tibet for a thousand years or so. Um, when they came out of Tibet into India, into exile, one of the first things they did was try to reestablish the monasteries. So this was in the um, 60s, when 1959, when they first came out, and hippies began to go make their pilgrimages to India. Um, and a lot of them were really taken with what the Tibetans were teaching. And the Tibetans welcomed them as students. Um, they were different from what they were used to seeing as Buddhist students, but um, they, the Lamas were very kind in accepting those students. But they didn't have the resources to really um, provide for them in the same way. They were trying to rebuild their whole government in exile, right? So it was Venerable Children's vision, I think for many, many years to try to establish a monastery where Western students could train and be supported um, and study Buddhism in a similar way, not the same way as they do in Tibetan culture, but, but to, to really be able to dig deeply into the practices and the um, study. So His Holiness was always very supportive and at a, at a critical time in the early 90s, there was a, a meeting of Buddhist Western teachers met with him and he, um, they were explaining the situation. And, and one of the nuns, a senior nun, explained to him that people wanted to follow this tradition and wanted to follow his monastics, but the, the challenges were really difficult because there was no place to go and study. And at that point, His Holiness wept, really, to, at the, the plight of real sincere practitioners who couldn't, didn't have a home. And he said, Later, as an aftermath of that session, he said, you go out and do what you need to do to develop your own structures and we'll support you, but we can't do it for you. And at that meeting, my teacher, Venerable Tupchen Children, said, oh, okay, so that's permission to go fulfill this dream. So it was another 10 or 15 years after that before she established Shravasti Abbey, but she did it with, with His Holiness's blessing. And he wrote that letter that you see on our website where he says, I am happy to give my support to this venture. So since that time, she's now been co-writing a series of books with him. Um, I think volume six is about to come out. Oh, that's incredible. Do you know where uh, we could find these books? Yeah, Wisdom Publishing um, publishes the series, and Amazon has them. They're everywhere. It's called The Library of Wisdom and Compassion. And the first one is called the, uh, Approaching the Buddhist Path. So what she's done is taken 40 years of His, of his Holiness's teaching and adapting them, not adapting the teachings to the West, but putting them in a, um, an order or... Um, kind of a, a language for Western students to be able to really understand what Tibetan Buddhism is about. So it'll probably be 10 or 11 volumes. Uh, she's working on volume seven right now. So he's been like the force behind her. He is the teacher that we turn to as our um, 
like most most high root root teacher, um, and we follow his um, example of how to be in the world. And I can't imagine a better example actually of someone completely devoted to the benefit of living beings in whatever way. Um, and particularly through the development of, of ethical conduct, um, what he calls secular ethics that don't have to be religious, but, but promoting ethics in terms of people caring for one another and caring for the planet. And so that's, he's a very strong influence in our practice. That's such an incredible journey that Sravasti Abbey has been on and really just incredible how he was able to give his blessings and then help you with your mission as well as the ways that you've helped him back? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I don't think much about helping him back. He's got, he's had so many, so many friends helping him around the world, but it's true that there's a, a small piece of the His Holiness's vision the Abbey fulfills. And another piece, actually, is um, that you may or may not know that in the Tibetan tradition for nuns, um, there has never been a full ordination in the Tibetan tradition. So although there have been nuns in the Tibetan tradition for all these many years, um, they have not received full ordination. So they're always novice nuns. But the lineage of full ordination for nuns does exist in the Chinese tradition. And so again, with His Holiness's blessing, our teacher received that full ordination in, the, in Taiwan in 1986, I think. And so when she established this monastery, it was with the idea that the nuns would all be fully ordained. So, and, and His Holiness um, also supports that for, for nuns. He can't wave a wand and make it happen in the Tibetan tradition, but he does support that it could happen. So all of us here, we have a little bit of a, um, I call it a Chinese gene, that we practice in the Tibetan tradition and His Holiness is our principal teacher, but we also go to Taiwan for full ordination and are trained by um, fully ordained nuns in, in that tradition. So uh, uh, he supports that too. So one of the unique aspects of Sravasti Abbey is that they house both monks and nuns together which is still a rarity, not just in Buddhism, but in other religions as well. So what roles do monks and nuns play in the monastery, and how has, have those roles evolved over time? Well, we are gender equal. That was part of the deal. Um, and our teacher was very intentional about this. She felt that um, because the opportunity to ordain in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition for Western students in the United States was so rare that to not make that available to both genders was not fair, it wasn't okay, right? And so the, the agreement would be that we would be as gender equal as we possibly could be. So what that has boiled down to is at the moment we have only one monk in residence and we have our 16 nuns, I think is right. So um, does he carry more heavy stuff than the rest of us? Well, probably not. <laughs> this monk is actually very good at um, fixing engines and so forth, but we have a couple of nuns that are too, so they share those roles. Um, I would say at this moment it is very gender equal in terms of, I mean, we work outdoors, we live out in the country, we maintain our forest, we have quite a lot of land, 
Um, Venerable Losong, our monk, um, operates the tractor for the snowplow, but we also have two nuns that do it, so they, they trade off. Um, and Venerable Losong is, takes his turn in the kitchen, same as the rest of us, so um, there's not much difference. The thing that we do, of course, is we make sure the men's wing is completely separate from the nuns' activities. And as and we do have male trainees. We have, we have, um, we have men who have aspirations to join our community, and we welcome that. Um, so over time, we may see more and more physical separation as that becomes necessary. Um, but we will always work together, and then um, the nuns and monks will live separately. And pretty much do now. The men's wing is now um, in a building where we have a lot of other activities, but the nuns never go down there. I really like that sense of community that you all seem to have at the Abbey. And I noticed on your website that your motto is creating peace in a chaotic world. What are some of the ways that the monastery accomplishes this goal? Well, you know, there's a, that's a, a, a kind of a Cohen, that peace in a chaotic world, because truthfully, to create peace in a chaotic world, we're talking about creating peace inside our own minds. And the chaotic world is the world in which each of us individually lives in. So in, the, in, a, in a larger sense, um, maybe in the immediate sense, the person with a calm mind and an open heart is um, creating peace in their own chaotic world. And in that way, by sharing the practices that help people to calm our own minds or to develop our love and compassion, then if we feel that that peace, of course, radiates to the people around us and slowly, slowly, one by one, person by person, people practice and um, that spreads. So it's not a mission so much to think that we're gonna go out and, mm, I don't know, quell the, loudness of what's going on in Washington, D.C. at the moment, for example, or other places. <laughs> There's a chaotic world out there, no question about it. Um, but when we walk in with a calm in mind, um, peace comes. So it's about that. Well, I think that this still makes a difference, even if it's just one person, since for that one person, their whole world has become just a little bit less chaotic now that you're in their lives. Yeah, it's true. And it has an effect. It really has an influence. I was amazed um, this year, I think one of, one of the questions that will come up, we've been closed um, for over a year now. Normally, over the we've been open since 2003. We have more than a thousand guests come through here every year. Um, people can come for a few hours and have lunch. People can come for retreats and programs. People come to train for a few months at a time. You know, all of that is welcome, and we really love having guests. And then every winter, we do three months of silent retreats. So the, the monastery closes down pretty much. Um, we may have guests come meditate with us for a month, and then they go home, and then we meditate for another two months. So that's our annual cycle. So last year, our retreat started at the end of December. We went into retreat, we meditated for two and a half months, and then the news about COVID started creeping in, creeping in, creeping in, creeping in, and we never opened our doors this year. So um, we've been now, some people haven't left since last December, really. 
a few people have had, you know, we had to go out to go to doctors, but for the most part, we've, we've just been here. And so we had to quickly convert all of that programming uh, to Zoom and Vimeo live stream. So fortunately, we, had, we have been live streaming teachings for a long time and our YouTube channel is huge. So we had some savvy in that direction, but to, re, but to do whole retreats or whole week-long courses and put them online was, it took some work. And um, so we've been reaching really far more people than could ever come here, ever. And I was surprised, we just did our, our New Year's retreat and um, I was just leading the intro on, early in the afternoon on New Year's Eve and 200 and some odd people were tuned into this intro. I was amazed. Um, so this creating peace in a chaotic world, going back to that, if, if through the power of Zoom and the power of Vimeo live stream, we can share what we're doing with more people from all over the planet, really. Um, that also creates seeds in them to be able to deal with such a trying time for people. Um, and that has an influence on everybody else that they're, that they're in contact with. So there's a real value there. There definitely is, and I'm sure that's not easy at all to deal with, but that is incredible that you were able to adapt so many of your different services online. And I think in general, one of the things that we learned from COVID on a wider scale is that technology is a lot more than we think it is. And it can be a new way to connect us to people since a lot of times people can be really critical and say, oh, technology divides us, technology makes us more selfish but in reality technology is neutral it's just how we use it and we've seen especially from the work that you do that people can use it for really amazing things and i've certainly gotten to do a lot of things i would have never been able to do like i attended a live stream of a buddhist temple in thailand and it felt like i was there wow. and it was so exciting since I always dreamed of going there and visiting the different temples and monasteries. Oh, that's really wonderful. And I've heard so many people talk about um, the support that they're finding online. I know, I know a couple of older women who are both in 12-step programs and have been for 30 years, you know, and we're wondering, what in the world am I going to do for my support system? But boom, they're, they're finding spiritually based 12-step support systems that are right there online and feel really connected with people. So I know that all kinds of needs are being met through, um, I mean, I bet Zoom didn't think their, top, their uh, platform would ever be what it is in terms of serving others. But, you know, we, we spend a lot of, one of our important meditations is to meditate on the kindness of others because it's so easy for the human mind to sort of naturally go to all the things that have that are wrong and that have never been right and you know my life has been miserable because of this and this and this but if we stop and think about the kindness that we receive it completely changes our view of the world and so one of the the topics of that meditation is to also think about the strangers that create the things that we appreciate and enjoy and so making prayers for the makers of Zoom and the people who run that platform, they've become very high on our list of, of uh, beings to be grateful for, for their kindness. 
Absolutely, absolutely. And I can relate as a college student who spends about 90% of her time on Zoom. Yeah, yeah. your whole education, well, not whole education, because there's people on the other end, but but the mechanics, the, the, the um, electronics that get you on there are critical. Absolutely, yes. So, uh, Sarvasti Abbey is very active in the community with programs such as the Prison Dharma Outreach, Interfaith Exchange, Spiritual Support Services, and even Youth Emergency Services. Could you tell us a little bit more about these programs? Yeah, which one you want? Let's start with the prison program, because um, it's, it's important. The prison program started, Federal Children's been publishing books since the 1980s, I think. And she got a letter from a person in prison saying that he had gotten his hands on one of her books and was really moved by it and asked for some spiritual advice. And so she wrote him back. And once she wrote him, then other people started to write because apparently she found out sometime later that this person had written several writers of Buddhist books and nobody else had written him back. But she had. And so slowly over time, the, and, and, and his word spread through that prison and then through other prisons, oh, this person writes back. Um, she began a, a pretty big correspondence with, with prison inmates who are looking for some way to change their lives and change their minds and make their lives meaningful. Um, so she, when she founded the Abbey, she already wasn't doing that and had a lot of volunteer students who were supporting her. So when she founded the Abbey, that became an important part of our reach, outreach right away. And now we have a couple of nuns who specialize in that area, but they, um, there, there are a thousand prison inmates on our database that we correspond with. We send them books, we send them videos of teachings, um, venerable children, and well, all of us, whenever we have a chance, we make prison visits. Um, so we go give talks and lead meditations. And, and, and I so admire those prison practitioners. Mostly it's men, um, but those guys are really committed to making their lives different and their minds different. They work on their love and compassion. They are working on purifying the negativities of their lives. Very, very powerful practitioners in an environment that would be so hard to practice in. Um, and so when we do this retreat from afar every year, we've been doing this for, I think, since our founding, where we, um, during our winter retreat, while we're meditating for three months, we invite people from around the world to join us by doing at least one session a day of the practice that we're doing. And um, more than 200 inmates usually join us every winter. So they're also very involved in the retreat from afar, and then we send them um, materials to support them throughout that 12-week period. So we feel quite connected with these guys. Some of them we've known for years, and Venerable's known them for even longer. Um, so that's an important outreach for us. And then another one, our interfaith exchange is, um, you know, different people have different specialties. I end up doing a lot of the interfaith stuff because I'm interested in it. I grew up in a Christian family, and I, um, uh, and I really appreciate, I really value my Christian upbringing. Um, so... Uh, especially where we are here in Washington state is a very, um, we're on the east side of the state, which is much more conservative politically and socially than um, where many of us met Buddhism on the west side. So to have a good relationship with the um, 
other faith leaders of this area seems extremely important for us. Plus her venerable children too. She's always been um, involved with interfaith work with both the Jewish community and with Catholic sisters. And uh, now there's um, the mosque that is here in Spokane, which is an hour away from us. Um, we have a nice connection with those folks. So um, that's just creating peace. That's another part of creating peace in a chaotic world. And it's one of His Holiness the Dalai Lama's main missions actually too. Of he talks about the four priorities of his life, and one of them is to, to create um, build bridges between religions because his view is that every religion exists to benefit the people that practice it, and that the values of love and compassion are universal. And so, to support that in any way that we can um, is important. So that's one of the things we do. Then Youth Emergency Services is um, an organization in our local small town. Our town population is about 2,100 people. And we were shocked to discover that there were a lot of homeless kids in that little tiny town. Um, a social worker started Youth Emergency Services because she knew kids were living under the bridge by the river and started finding host homes for them and established this organization that is now... <sighs> Now, during COVID, they are feeding 80 families in our county who are, who are out of money, plus taking care of kids who are, um, get thrown out of or have difficult home situations due to addiction or coming out as LBGT, LBGTQ kids that end up on the street because the family doesn't want them or rejects them for the moment. That's not a fair thing to say necessarily. But anyway, there's a situation that doesn't work for them to be at home. Um, so Youth Emergency Services make sure that they stay in school, that they're supported to stay in school, has a drop-in place for kids to come. And so we have had two nuns on the board of directors of Youth Emergency Services for years now, 10 probably more. So that's our involvement with them and all the ways that a board of directors is involved. That's some and really incredible work that you guys do. And I really appreciate it. And I'm sure there's countless other people out there that are very grateful to what you've done, even if you might not know it. Well, we do what we can. I mean, the Buddha himself was, he was radical in his um, social work. He really was. And uh, His Holiness also has said many times that Buddhists could learn a lot from um, our Christian brothers and sisters in terms of caring for the sick, caring for the poor, you know, making sure that education is taken care of and so forth. And so uh, we feel like there's a certain kind of mandate, both through Buddhism's wish to relieve suffering and um, His Holiness's activities to try to uh, bring benefit. That um, And so most of us are pretty interested in social engagement in that way. Well, I think that's definitely incredible what you guys do, and I appreciate how you're willing to help people that sometimes other people might sort of look over and say, oh, well, they're not really worth mm. helping, you know, like, oh, well, this person went to prison, they they don't deserve to be helped, or they can't be helped, or, oh, this person's homeless, it's probably their fault, you know, but I think that's a really important approach to take towards rehabilitation. And then a lot of times people might not 
have a good support system or uh, like family or friends to help them out. But then once they have Buddha in their life, it's like their whole world opens up and they have this whole new family that they never had before. Yeah, that's true for a lot of people. And, you know, one thing that's interesting about Buddhism, I think that that makes a difference, a couple of things. One is that from the Buddhist point of view, every single living being has the potential to become fully awakened. Every being, not just every human, but every being has this fundamental, what's called Buddha nature, this fundamental purity of mind. And of course, we also have our afflicted mind states. We have our anger, we have our craving, we have our jealousy, we have our pride, and that gets in the way, but it's not the essence of who we are. So when someone um, does a criminal act, even a really violent, harmful act to another, it's a, it's a moment in time. It's a moment when their mind has been completely overwhelmed by, by the power of their hatred or the power of their affliction at that moment. But it's just a moment in their life. It's not the whole of who they are. And they have the potential to change and to transform and to you know, make amends for that action to the best of their ability and make different choices about how they want to be in the world. And I think our society tends to grab onto um, people, characterize them in one or two simplistic ways, and then that's it. And that we do that for our heroes, and we do it for the people that we trod upon. And when our heroes crash because oh, they, we didn't, they didn't live up to our values, well, we despise them too. But in essence, from the Buddhist point of view, we're changing moment by moment by moment. All of these conditions are at play constantly. And, um, and very few of us are in control, really, of our minds and of our lives. We're, we're reacting and responding to what's around us. So, so, you know, the Buddha really teaches that compassion is the only, only reasonable response. It doesn't mean um, somehow allowing that everything is okay. It's not that nothing is, that people shouldn't be held accountable for their actions. It's not that. But they also can be forgiven. I have to say I agree with that. And I just read this um, story in a book yesterday and it really just sort of took me aback since it was about this young woman named Kim Hyun Hui and she actually bombed a plane for the North Korean government. But then after she was um, arrested and sentenced to prison, she started to realize what the world was actually like and that basically her whole life she'd been lied to and used but then later on the actual uh, prime minister of south korea gave her a pardon when she was issued the death penalty and she wrote a book about it and she donated all of the money to the victims that were affected by the bombing and she continues to do activist work for North Korean refugees as well as various worldwide humanitarian crises. And for me, that's just incredible that she went from being like, oh, I can just do this horrible act of terrorism and that's fine to basically using her, all of her energy to try to help people that were affected by things that she grew up with, so. 
What a story. What's it called? Oh. Is it an article or a book? It's, um, so it was a podcast called The Brainwashed Bomber, Kim Hyun Hui, and it was a, a series called uh, Female Criminals. So it varies wildly from like female gangsters to a woman who convinced King George III's doctor that she gave birth to rabbits. <laughs> That's kind of crazy, but oh, that's an interesting story. I'll look her up. Thank you. Thanks for the tip. Oh, what a story. Yeah, no problem. I can send you the link later if you'd okay, like. Okay, okay. <laughs> but yeah, people can change. And our prison system isn't built to acknowledge that. Do you have any prayers you would like to share with our audience today? Sure, I do, actually. We have one that um, parts of it is Holiness the Dalai Lama says every day. It's very important, kind of precious prayer. And it comes from um, Shanti Deva, who's an 8th century, I think, writer. So, you know, we're looking at some old texts. But he, he wrote the book on becoming a bodhisattva, if you will, um, of someone who is so intent on um, relieving the suffering of the world, that you use that as your motivation to become fully awakened, no matter what it takes to do that. And so he has a dedication prayer that we say quite regularly, and it goes like this. May all beings everywhere, plagued by sufferings of body and mind, obtain an ocean of happiness and joy by virtue of my merits. May no living creature suffer, commit evil, or ever fall ill. May no one be afraid or belittled with a mind weighed down by depression. May the blind see forms. May the deaf hear sounds. May those whose bodies are worn with toil be restored on finding repose. May the naked find clothing. The hungry find food. May the thirsty find water and other delicious drinks. May the poor find wealth. Those weak with sorrow find joy. May the forlorn find hope, constant happiness and prosperity. May all who are ill or injured quickly be freed from their ailments. Whatever diseases there are in the world, may these never occur again. May the frightened cease to be afraid and those bound be freed. May the powerless find power and may people think of benefiting each other. For as long as space endures and as long as living beings remain, until then, May I too abide to dispel the misery of the world. Those are very beautiful prayer. Thank you so much for sharing that with us and for sharing your time with us. Did you have anything that you would like to talk about on the show today? No, I just want to add that one day our teacher said, do you think that would go to the tune of the Star Spangled Banner? And I said, I don't know, let's try it. <laughs> it does. Sometimes we sing it to the tune of the Star Spangled Banner. So you get this feeling of, May all beings everywhere, plagued by sufferings of body and mind, obtain an ocean of happiness and joy by virtue of my merit. And then you sing the song that we have so associated with American culture and football games and whatever. But with that melody, praying may the blind see forms may the uh, the 
Yeah, may the deaf hear sounds. May those whose bodies are worn with toil be restored on finding repose. Singing that to the tune of the Star Spangled Banner is just like this, this, these dreams and aspirations for what we can be as a nation for one another are very, very inspiring. So, um, yeah, for as long as space endures and as long as living beings remain, until then, may we abide to dispel the misery of the world. It's very powerful. <laughs> to learn more about Servosti Abbey and attend their programs, visit www.servostiabbey.org. I also recommend reading Courageous Compassion by His Holiness the Dalai Lama and Venerable Tubten Chodron.